I want to talk about the right response. The right response. Um, so there's something in um, American government that we call resident alien. The resident alien. And it speaks of the person that lives in America, they work in America, they've settled in America, uh, whether it be temporary or permanent. Although they live here, their home is in another country. The resident alien. So they live in America where we speak English, where we have a two-party, a two-political party um, system, political system. Um, they live here um, where we have a set of morals and values that we live by or that we say that we live by. Uh, but although the, the resident alien lives here, their home may be in another country with another set of rules, another set of way of life, another set of languages. The resident, the resident evil, the resident, the resident alien, the resident alien. And they, they live in America, but their home is from another country. So they live in one place, but their home is in another place. And we as children of God, we as believers, we are the resident aliens of the earth. We live on earth, but we're not of this earth. The Bible speaks of us being in the world, but not of the world. Uh, Jesus says that my kingdom is not even of this world. The writer of Hebrews says, we don't, we don't look for a lasting city here on earth. We have another city coming, coming soon. Well, my grandmama would say, Emma B. Henry, God rest her soul, that this ain't my home, I'm just passing through. And when you have a type of faith in Jesus, when you have your hope and trust in God, then you know this earth, this, is, this ain't it. When you have your faith in Jesus, when you have your faith in God, then you know that when loved ones pass away, when family, when family members are gone on, with church members, we don't see them anymore, when you and I check out of here, we have enough faith and hope in the resurrection of Jesus to know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We know that when this earthly tabernacle is dissolved, we got another, we got another home, another building not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. Because we live in this world, but we're not of this world. And that's what Paul, is, he, he's addressing the church in Philippi here in uh, Philippians chapter 4, the entire letter of Philippians, really, and he's encouraging these believers, these Christians in the Roman Empire, these resident aliens, these Christians that live on earth, how to operate as what he calls in chapter 3, citizens of heaven. He says, yes, you're a citizen of, of Rome, you're a citizen of America, but in all actuality, you're really a citizen of heaven. And because we are citizens of heaven, there's a certain way that you and I ought to behave and think and operate while living here on earth. Because, you know, this ain't our home, we're just passing through. So Paul, in, in the book of Philippians, he drops different nuggets throughout the entire book. That's why I asked you to read, it's a letter, really. And when this letter was written, they didn't really break it up in chapters, they read it in, in its entirety. That's where you can get the most effective reading. So. The book of Philippians, it speaks of different nuggets on, on how we survive as resident aliens, on how we operate as Christians living on earth. 
So he says that in chapter one, that when you want to um, live as a citizen of heaven, you have to be aware of the reality that although you may be a citizen of heaven, you still struggle on earth. That just because you are a citizen of heaven, it doesn't mean you are, that doesn't mean that you are excluded from struggle. Because yes, we're citizens of heaven, but we live on earth. And on earth, Paul says in chapter one, the struggle is real. And if anybody know that the struggle is real, it's Paul. Matter of fact, the struggle is so real for Paul that Paul, as he's writing this letter, he's in a prison in Rome. He's being persecuted as he's encouraging other persecuted Christians. So here is Paul. He know that the struggle is real because he's in prison, but really, the church in Philippi was actually birthed out of persecution. This is Bible study, so I got some Bible references for you. Acts, Acts chapter 16, you go back and read that. And this is after the Holy Spirit stopped Paul from going into one location and told him to go to Macedonia. Y'all remember that? And then he goes uh, to this place uh, near Philippi and he runs into a woman named Lydia who was a businesswoman. And he baptizes Lydia and the whole family, the whole household got saved. And that church of Philippi started at Lydia's house. As they were going to Lydia, back and forth from the water to Lydia's house, Paul and Silas run into a, a little girl, a slave girl, who's possessed with an evil spirit. Paul eliminates the devil, the demon, out of this, out of this woman, and now the woman is made whole through the power of Jesus Christ. Now this church begins with a woman of high class, and it continues with a slave girl. Paul goes to prison. There's a man that asks, Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul saves the man, baptizes the man, and his whole family. Now the church in Philippi started with a businesswoman, continues with a slave girl, and now adds on a middle-class man. Now this is the church in Philippi, but it was birthed in persecution. What do you mean? Well, after Paul delivered this woman from the devil, the, the, the evil that was in her, the Bible says that Paul and Silas were whipped, they were, they were flogged, they were thrown in prison, and that's how the church in Philippi, in Philippi was birthed. And now, because Paul knows a lot about struggle. In fact, he has been rejected by apostles. His, his, his ministry has been discredited. He's been beat. He's been flogged. He's been talked about. He's been shipwrecked. He's been bit by poisonous snakes. All because of his faith, all because of the work that he was doing for the kingdom of God. And Paul says... That when you are a citizen of heaven, you have to be aware to know that the struggle is real. The church in Philippi knows about the struggle. In fact, they've now inherited the struggle that Paul, their leader, has gone through. So not, not only is Paul in prison being persecuted writing this letter, but he's writing this letter to a church who they themselves are dealing with persecution. They're Christians of the Roman Empire. They are outcasts in society. Not only that, but there now is division in the church. You got to read the whole letter. There's division in the church. There's leaders that are, that are disagreeing with each other. They have, a, they have a leader in prison. They're going through persecution. Loved ones are being destroyed. Uh, they have division in the church. And so Paul writes this letter to help them understand that there's a certain response that citizens of heaven have for the struggle that they deal with on earth. 
All of us are going to experience struggle because the struggle is real. And, and if we're followers of Jesus, that doesn't mean that you have been drafted to the perfect life. In fact, it's the complete opposite. That once you confess a hope in Christ, it's almost like you volunteering for a struggle. Because you got to think about it. Jesus struggled. The Bible says that Jesus uh, was birthed in a time where people that looked like him were dying. He struggled. He was born in the back of a farm's animal, in an animal's farm somewhere. He struggled. He, his family didn't believe in him. His, his, his hometown rejected him. He struggled. He had a friend that denied him, another friend that betrayed him. He struggled. He was a victim of police brutality. He struggled. He was a victim of being a part of a corrupt government. He struggled. He was nailed to a cross. He was crucified. He, he, he struggled. And Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, you're going to have to struggle. He says, now y'all see what they did to a green tree. I'm Jesus. I'm the man made flesh. I walked on water. I've, I've raised people from the dead. This is Jesus. And Jesus even struggled. And Jesus says, you see what they do to a green tree. Now what you think they're going to do to you? You shall have tribulation. The struggle is real. Yes, I know that you are a citizen of heaven, but the struggle is real. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It's interesting that many of us claim to be followers of Christ, but want to ignore the places that Jesus went. All right. So we call we followers of Christ. Christ went in the wilderness to be tempted by the Satan. We want to ignore the wilderness. Christ, Christ was in the garden of Gethsemane. He was depressed and stressed out for what was coming. And we want to skip over the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was crucified on the cross, dead, buried in the grave. We want to skip over the crucifixion and meet him at the empty tomb. No, Jesus says, no, there is no erection without crucifixion. Paul says that we share in his suffering to share in his glory. And if you are a citizen of heaven, if you're just a resident alien here on earth, then you got to understand that when you're living on earth, the struggle is real. And many of us, we ain't got to look at Paul and the church in Philippi to know that the struggle is real. We can look at our own history as a people. Struggle through the Middle Passage, two million slaves died. Struggle through slavery where our humanity was suppressed. Struggle through Jim Crow where there's a lynching tree on every corner. Struggle in the modern era where there's no, where black folks don't want to vote, black folks don't want to get married, black folks don't want to come to church. And these were the things that were illegal 400 years ago. Now that we have the freedom, we want to act like we still in slavery. The struggle is real. You ain't even got to look at your black history book. You could just look at your own life and see that the struggle is real. Where you've lost a job, you've lost a loved one. The struggle is real. Struggle in your home with your children, your marriage. The struggle is real. Trying to figure out where my career is going to go, how my business is going to take off. The struggle is real. So in essence, we have to figure out how, how do we respond to the struggle? Because that's, that's what we are. We're, we're, we're citizens of heaven living on earth. And living on earth, every now and again, you're going to struggle. So Paul gives some responses. In chapter 1, he says to uh, conduct yourselves as worthy of the gospel. This is how you respond to struggle. In, in chapter 2, he says, let this mind be in you that was also in Jesus Christ. This is how you respond to the struggle as a citizen 
of heaven. He talks about being humble in chapter 2. He talks about the church being unified as a body of Christ in chapter 2. This is how we respond to the struggle as citizens of heaven living on earth. And then by the time we get to chapter 4, well, well let me not skip uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3, Paul says that in order for us to have the right response, we got to forget about those things that are behind and press forward toward the mark of the high calling of Jesus. Then in chapter 4, I didn't read y'all the whole letter. In chapter 4, <laughs> the response is, here's what he says. You are, citizens of, you are citizens of heaven, living on earth, going through struggle. Here is your response. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, oh, y'all must have read it. <laughs> Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Wait a minute. What is my response to going through struggle? The struggle is real on earth. I'm a citizen of heaven. I know that I ain't from here, although I live here. And because I live here, I got to go through the struggle. And what, and what does Paul say? Paul has the audacity to say, in the midst of your struggle, rejoice in the Lord always. Wait, what's my right response? He says to rejoice. He says, I'm tired of them Christians that are always sad and down. The sun comes out every now and again. He says, be, he says, rejoice, be joyful, be, have cheer, be glad, rejoice. Well, well, wait a minute, how, wait a minute, I'm going through struggle though. I'm, I'm struggling right now though. Because I'm living on earth where we ignore poverty. I'm living on earth where violence is a norm, I'm living on earth, where it seems like corruption is expected, I'm living on earth, where it seems like the church has been compromised, we, we, we living on earth, how can we rejoice in something like that? Well, Paul, Paul didn't say to be happy. I don't know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still a, stu a student of the Bible, I don't know if happiness is even biblical. I mean, perhaps God wants to move us beyond happiness and into joy and being able to rejoice. Because here's what I've discovered, and we probably heard this before. Happiness is based off what is happening around you. Which means that it is your emotional and mental state that is solely dependent on your current circumstance. Happiness. That the only way I can feel happy is if this person is in my life, is if, if I make this amount of money, if I drive this car, if I live in this neighborhood, if I go to this school, then I'll be happy. But no, wait a minute, Paul didn't say be happy always. And again, I say be happy. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. So what's the difference? Well, happiness is based off the external, but joy is rooted what is what is in internal. Um, happiness is based off external. It is something that runs out, it's temporary. But joy is designed for you to be internal and eternal. That is not, is not influenced by what is on the outside, it's, it's tapped in from the inside, and it's the type of joy that lasts forever. So Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the midst of, a, in the midst of, your, in your, in the midst of your struggle. He says rejoice 
Rejoice. How do we rejoice in the midst of our struggle? There's a, there's a, a documentary that's out. Um, it's called Happy, Happy Jail. It's on Netflix, Happy Jail. It follows this story, this, uh, this prison in the Philippines of, this, of these inmates that went viral in 2017 because they were dancing to Michael Jackson's thriller in the prison, in the jail. Inmates were dancing. And, um, and this video of the, inmate, of the inmates dancing went viral. Millions and millions of people have tuned in. It is now a documentary on Netflix. And, uh, and, and, and the reason why I believe it went viral and now it is such a success is not because of the great choreographed dances that they had, because they were great dancers. You should go and look at them. It's not because of how in sync there was as dancers, but I believe the reason why this is such a great success because people want to see that there is a way to be an inmate and still dance. Maybe the video went viral because people need a little inspiration to see prisoners still having a good time. Because here it is, these inmates show us in the Philippines that you can dance even while you're in bondage. And that's what, that's what being a citizen of heaven feels like. That's what being a believer feels like. That even when things don't go your way, do you have enough faith to keep dancing in bondage? Wait a minute. It, we just don't have that spiritually, but we have that culturally as a people. That when it was our enslaved ancestors on the field picking that cotton, they weren't looking around all sad and depressed. Y'all, they were still singing songs that uplift their people. How is that? They had enough faith to sing while they were in slavery and if you know who Jesus is then you have that faith that it taps into then whatever going on around me I have the ability to dance in bondage to sing while I'm in slavery how can you do it because I'm rejoicing in the Lord I'm rejoicing in the Lord because I know that even my struggle is not to take me out it's to develop me why? Because I'm, I'm rejoicing the Lord. It's, it's, it's the Lord. I, I, I can rejoice because I know that, that even though things are bad on the outside, I still have joy on the inside. Um, so th this past week, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to go um, to Light of the World Christian Church this week. Uh, Frank Thomas and CTS had their first Mixed Methods Preaching Conference. And um, the first cohort of the PhD program, they're the ones teaching the class. They have preaching labs where we learn how to preach. And then they invited some real preachers in to show us how to preach. And so the first day they had uh, uh, Dr. Freddie Haynes uh, third. Um, they had Otis Moss Jr. Um, they, they've had uh, Teresa Fry Brown. Um, today, unfortunately, I got to miss my boy, Dr. Charlie Dates. Um, and, but I had the opportunity to see Oldest monster third. And y'all, y'all will be proud of me. I wore a suit every day this week. I've been wearing suits all week, trying to play the game, got my uniform on, trying to look like a preacher a little bit. And so I went to go see Otis Moss Jr. And he testified about when his first wife died while giving birth to, to, to one of their children. And um, the, ch the child survived and he became a single parent at that moment. He said he was crushed. This is Otis Monster Jr. He's a walking, talking history book. He's, done hang he's hung out with everybody. And he said that he's, he was crushed when his wife passed away. And um, he was about 23, 24 years old at the time. The wife was uh, very young as well. And so he was crushed. And he began to reach out to people that he heard has gone through that same situation. And one of the people that he reached out to was Howard Thurman, the scholar, the author Howard Thurman. And um, 
And Otis Moss Jr. says that he went to go talk uh, to, to Howard Thurman about his wife dying. And he says that I was, I was looking for, for sympathy. He said, I was looking to be affirmed in my emotions. I'm crushed. I'm disappointed. I'm in agony. I'm upset. And he was looking to be affirmed in those, in those emotions. But he sat down with Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman said this. Otis Moss remembered it. Year from all these years, he still remember. He says, "To don't allow anyone to have control over the thermostat of your soul." Hold on. He says, "Whoever has, whoever has control over the thermostat, has control over the temperature." And then he says, "This that territory belongs to God." Oof. He said, I'm, I was in pain. I was hurt. I'm in agony. I tried to go get some advice. He said, Howard Thurman said, don't let anyone have control over the soul, over the thermostat of your soul. Because whoever has control over the thermostat has control over the temperature. And that territory belongs to God. Here's what Howard Thurman, he said, and, and, and he said, when Howard Thurman said that, he just got up, got his things and walked away. That was all that needed to be said, because here's what Howard Thurman was trying to get, um, was trying to get Otis Moss Jr. and all of us really to understand that when God has soul control over the thermostat of your soul, regardless of what is going on around you, regardless of the status of your marriage, regardless of the behavior of your children, regardless of who is here, who has gone, who is for you, who is against you when God has the control of your thermostat then I can still rejoice in the Lord always because my joy ain't tied into the external my joy is tied into the internal here it is happiness is based off how much money is in your account but joy is connected to the one that owns a cattle on a thousand hills happiness is connected to the one who's in the White House but joy is tied in to the one who's king of kings and Lord Lord of Lords. Happiness is tied in to the man and the woman that is in your life, but joy is tied in to the one that never leaves you nor forsakes you. Happiness is tied in to the likes I get on Instagram, but my joy is tied in to the one that demonstrated his love toward me, that when I was yet wild and now, Jesus died for me. Is there anybody in the Family Life Center that got a little joy this afternoon? Wait a minute. Here's the right response. Rejoice. But how can I rejoice when the money falling apart? How can I rejoice when the community is dying? How can I rejoice when certain people are in leadership positions? How do I rejoice? He says, Here, he says here's, here, here's how you rejoice. Because you think that you, you are rejoicing in pain. He says that you think you are rejoicing in agony. You think that you are rejoicing in the tribulation. He said, no, you're not in pain, you're just experiencing pain. Woo. I didn't know y'all was gonna get that or not. He says, he says, you're not experiencing the chaos. He said, you're not in the chaos, you are experiencing the chaos. It's a part of your, it's the, it's the perspective that you have. Because you can still, because here it is, Paul says, that if you are a citizen of heaven and trying to rejoice in the Lord always, it's impossible to rejoice when you're in anything other than the Lord. So, but when you are positioned in Christ, 
that gives you the power and the ability to rejoice always. Because um, watch what he says. He says, rejoice in who? The Lord. Because the problem is um, persecution, tribulation, pain, hurt, loss has a way of getting us outside the will of God. But when you position yourself in the Lord, then you say, I don't care what I go through. I don't care what I'm up against. Nothing is going to disconnect me from the power of Jesus Christ on my life. All right, because we ain't in the sanctuary, we can keep it real. Uh, when, you, when, when you dealt with that, when that loss, when you dealt with that tribulation, when you dealt with that pain, that hurt, that initial emotion, we all think about going back to what we came out of. Okay, y'all still don't want to be real in the family life center. So some of us may want to drink it out, smoke it out, sex it out. Because persecution has a way of getting us outside the will of God. And as a result, instead of rejoicing in the Lord, we try to make it by other means. Okay, uh, 2 Samuel, uh, David uh, loses his son. His son dies. And when his son dies... Um, well, he, he died from a sickness. While the son was sick, the Bible says that David prayed and fasted uh, that, that God would heal his son. God didn't heal his son the way David thought. Uh, David's son at seven days old died. And when, and when David's son died at seven days old, the Bible says um, that, that the, uh, uh, David's associates, his servants, went to go tell him that, yo, David, your son is dead. And the Bible says that when David found out that his son died, um, he got up, he cleaned up, he went to the tabernacle and worshiped God. Okay, y'all missed it. Um, he's a man of the God's own heart, but he's still living on earth. He, he got to go through a struggle. The struggle is he lost his son. Look at how he responds to the struggle. Look how he responds to the loss of his son. The Bible says that he got up because it's easy to stay low down when you're going through a storm. The Bible says, the Bible says that he cleaned up. Because it's easy to revert to dirty things while you're trying to get through a hurt and a pain. The Bible says that not only did he get up and clean up, the Bible says that he made his way to the house of God and began to rejoice. How was David able to do that? Well, David says, I know that I can respond in this way because my son will never come down to me, but one day I can return to my son. Here's what David did. David responded by the faith that he had in God, understanding that yes, I'm in pain. Yes, I'm in agony. Yes, I'm going through, but I can still get up. I can still clean up and I can still rejoice because when your faith is in Jesus, it don't matter what in the hell is going on. You can find your way to rejoice in. Uh, oh, my son, it's, it's crazy that I'm saying this still. My son, uh, Jeffrey Johnson III, uh, he's seven weeks on Friday, and um, uh, at, at one month, we had to go to his checkup. And so we go to the, to the checkup. It seemed like he going to the doctor all the time. We go to the checkup, and, um, and when we get to the checkup, they always tell us uh, to take off the clothes and put them in a dry diaper. And they leave it up to the daddy to do that. So um, I, I get him out of his clothes. I put him in a dry diaper. I lay him on, on the table, and the doctor in this particular day, he comes in because he's, he's trying to give a shot to my son. And... Uh, and he says, stand right here. He got his needle and he, and he and puts a shot in little Jeffrey, baby Jeffrey's leg. And then um, I've heard the loudest scream I've ever heard him scream before. I mean, he's cried a lot since I met him, but this was the loudest cry that I've ever heard him experience. 
Meanwhile, his mother's not even looking because the pain on the baby's face. Here's a young black boy in America getting a shot. We don't know what's going on. The baby is crying, he's screaming, and then guess what? The baby started to look at me like, bro, you hear me crying, don't you? I thought you said you was my daddy. You're gonna let this strange man put something in me and make me cry, I'm in pain? And, and, and little Jeffrey had to learn the lesson that maybe all of us need to learn, is that just because the father has his eye on you, it don't mean that pain can't get to you. Jeffrey is crying, Janelle not looking, I gotta step in. The doctor's done, puts the band-aid on him. He's still crying, I pick him up, hold him close. He stops crying immediately. Now he's relaxed, now he's quiet. Now he's back to his chill, calm self. Because Jeffrey understood that when I'm going through pain, as long as I'm in the arms of my father, I know that everything is going to be all right. And if a one-month-old infant understands the security that comes with being in the arms of the father, how much more shall you and I? It doesn't mean that just because we're in the arms of the father, it don't mean that people won't take shots at us. It won't mean that we won't go through pain. It won't mean that we won't cry a little bit. But in the midst of all that, we can still hold on to our faith because how many know when you're in the arms of the father, everything is going to be all right? Wait a minute, I'm almost done. The struggle is real. You a citizen of heaven, living on earth. Struggle is real. You still got to respond the right way. Rejoice in the Lord. Well, how often should I rejoice in the Lord, Pastor Paul? Always. Wait a minute. Here's Paul. He's in prison. Here's a pastor encouraging people who are going through persecution while he himself is going through persecution. That's really the paradox of the pastor's role where you have to pray for those when you need prayer. Counsel those when you need counseling. There's a preacher in California that just killed himself and he was an advocate for mental illness. Why? Because even pastors have suicidal thoughts. So who prays for the pastor? Who counsels the pastor, who encourages the pastor? Well, sometimes it's the role of the people to encourage the pastor so that the pastor can encourage the people. When you read the letter of Philippians, you'll discover that Paul is thanking them for their encouragement and the investment that the people was putting in his life so that even while he was going through, he could still encourage the people. And how did he encourage them? Rejoice in the Lord. How often, Pastor Paul? Always. Well, um, I've been at CTS, a lot of the world, with scholars and PhD students and great preachers and pastors all week. I knew that I had to step up my game when it came to doing my homework and doing my, and my preaching thing. And so I did my homework when I came over here uh, to escape the conference and come holler at y'all for a second that, that I did my homework and tried to figure out what always meant. So I looked at the Greek. I looked at Latin. I looked at all the translations. I looked at the different commentaries. I, I tried to figure out what is the original meaning for always. And I discovered that always has always meant always. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. 
in every situation, in every circumstance, in every moment of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Don't let nobody quiet your rejoicing. Let, no, let not nobody uh, quiet you down, mute you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, that's difficult because what, one of the things that this text is tailored to teach us is that that your life, your time with God is not always a good time. What, what, what this text is telling to teach us is that going through life with God is not always good. But Paul didn't say rejoice in the Lord sometimes, rejoice in the Lord when you're having a good time. He, he because some of us think that our rejoicing uh, is predicated on what day it is. What place you in where you are in life, the emotions that you're going through. So you think rejoicing is just reserved for Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning. You think rejoicing is just reserved for when you come to church. You think rejoicing is reserved when the choir and the praise team give all that they got to hype you up. You think rejoicing is reserved for when they sing your favorite song. No, Paul says you don't rejoice, uh, you don't rejoice sometimes, you rejoice all the time. You rejoice Always, you don't just rejoice when you and your spouse are on the same page and when your child is back on the honor roll and when your money is back where you want it to be. No, Paul said you don't rejoice sometimes, you rejoice always. Always. Well, 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 well how, how do I do that? How do I rejoice always if not all the time life seems to be good with God? How do I rejoice how do I rejoice always? Because we agree that sometimes with life, with God, life could be good or life could be bad. But to me, it's a little easier to worship and rejoice when things are a little better. The challenge is to rejoice when we feel like it's a bad time. So watch what Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Um, I'm rejoicing in the Lord always because I have joy in the Lord. I don't have happiness on earth. Happiness on earth runs out. So if my happiness is dependent on my money, that runs out. Beauty runs out. Good looks runs out. Good health runs out. Every now and again, love will run out. But guess what? Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always. So that means that I'm, my, it's not my happiness that is connected to what is temporary on earth. I'm rejoicing in the Lord always because I'm rejoicing out of the joy that I have, which means that it's not connected to what is on earth. It is connected to what is in heaven. So it's not temporary. It's eternal. In other words, I'm not rejoicing because I'm going through. My praise is not based off the situation. My, I'm not giving my situation the praise. I'm giving my God the praise. And here's what I discovered. That our praise should match the consistency of God's character. Our praise should match the consistency of God's character. So if, if God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, then my rejoicing should be always. If, 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 if God is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore, then my praise, my rejoicing 
should be consistent with his character. It's, it's always. Because if, 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 if we're praising God, if we're rejoicing God always, yes, I praise him in the good times, but I still praise him in the bad times because we don't praise God for the same reason. We don't praise God for the same reason every time. So one, one, one Sunday, one Wednesday, one morning, you begin to praise God before, because of what God has done for you. Maybe another moment you begin to praise God for what God has done to somebody else. Open the door, heal somebody, healed you, made a way, gave you what you was looking for. You begin to praise God for what he has done. Then there's another moment, another opportunity where we praise God, not for what he has done, but we praise God for who he is. Uh, we praise God for his character. See, your faith, you know your faith is at a high level when you can praise God before God even does what you think he is going to do because you've learned to not just praise God for what he's done, but you've learned to praise God for who he is. And sometimes what, who God is may not always line up with what he does, with what I'm going through. But I continue to praise God despite of what I'm going through because I don't praise God for what God does. I praise God for who God is. So Paul's saying, when you're going through, when you're going through persecution, rejoice. I'm not rejoicing because of the persecution. I'm rejoicing because God is a protector in the midst of the persecution. God says, Jay, when you broke and you can't afford tuition and you can't pay for diapers, don't let the church folk not catch you not praising. Because y'all will still see me rejoice because I know that this, I'm not rejoicing because I'm broke. I'm rejoicing because God is a provider. When my loved one's sick, when I'm going through, I still rejoice. I'm not rejoicing because of the sickness. I'm rejoicing because God is a doctor that never lost a patient. Y'all, I'm not rejoicing because of bad times. I'm rejoicing because I know that God is behind the scenes working everything out for the good. I rejoice despite of my loss. I rejoice despite of Mary Barnett not being here. I rejoice despite of what I'm grieving with because Paul says, I grieve, but I'm still glad. How is it that you can grieve Mary Barnett, but you're still glad? Because I know that when this earthly tabernacle is dissolved. There's a building not made with hands. I know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know that Jesus is a pair for place for Mary Barnett and he's already received her because I'm not praising God for what he's doing. I'm praising God for who he is. Wait a minute. But what if he don't do what you think he gonna do? Paul says, rejoice always. Why do I rejoice always even though he ain't did what he gonna say he gonna do yet? I messed that all up. You still rejoice because he's already done enough. I still come to church and praise him even though God has not 
opened the door. He, he hasn't made the way. He didn't give the tuition. He didn't give the scholarship. He didn't make the way for my child. Guess what? I still rejoice because of not what he's done, but because he's already done enough. Okay, y'all still not rejoicing. Um, can I tell you one requirement you need to rejoice? I know this is the Family Life Center. One requirement that you need to rejoice, the Bible lets us know that there's only one requirement to get a real rejoice. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's the only requirement that you need. All you need is a little breath. And I just checked on you a few seconds ago. You still breathing just fine. And if you're still breathing just fine, it means God ain't done with you yet. Is there anybody in the Family Life Center that can give God a sanctuary praise that when you were going through, when you were in pain, when you were in difficulty, you still praise God because God is the one that delivers. God is the one that sets free. God is still good even when my situation is bad I can still rejoice in the Lord always somebody ought to give God an always praise this is the day that the Lord has made we shall rejoice and be glad in it from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same God's name is worthy to be praised I will bless the Lord at all times is there anybody in the room with the praise in the mouth so somebody give God a praise in this place and rejoice in the Lord always